to Romans. I feel like we've already had a buffet, right? It's dessert time. An hour's worth of dessert. Are you ready for that? I want to ask you a question as we start out this morning. How do you know what's real? How do you know what's true? We live in a culture where truth is becoming subjective. No room for a so-called objective truth. And by the way, if you don't understand the difference there, subjective is my experience. It's subjective to me. It looks like there's a bunch of you, but if you are looking at me, it looks like there's only one of me, right? So it's your perspective. That's what subjective truth means. Objective truth is truth no matter how you see it, how you think about it. I could tell you that the sky is purple, and you're like, no, it's not. It's, it's really blue. I see it. And the objective truth does not change according to your perspective. Subjective truth can. But we live in a culture where people are saying more and more, there's no such thing as objective truth. Anybody follow or see the stuff from the Babylon Bee? If you're not following the Babylon Bee on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, do it. I, I would say take out your phone now and do it, but don't. Uh, wait till we're done. Babylon Bee put out an article last night, actually, as I was up late finishing up. This one came out. I, I want to read this. The, the title of the article, was, and, and let me explain what Babylon Bee is real quick. It's a spoof site. It puts out like funny articles, funny headlines, um, makes fun of Rob Bell, makes fun of Joel Osteen, good stuff. So <laughs> um, anyway, last night the, 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 the title said this, Culture in which all truth is relative, suddenly concerned about fake news. Let me read the article for you. It's very short. Sources from within the United States confirmed Tuesday that American society, while typically rejecting concepts like absolute truth and objective moral standards, is slowly showing grave concern for the rise of fabricated news stories after a reported uptick in fake news during the recent election season and President Trump's habit of using the term to describe many mainstream media outlets. And these, this is fictitious, okay? That they're, they're, so when I read this story, it's fictitious. One Oregon man who rejects the idea that humanity can even be sure the universe exists in any meaningful sense was nonetheless disturbed by the idea that websites could publish completely false information for anyone in the world to read. It's just absolutely wrong in my opinion, said the man who doesn't believe in absolute ideals of right and wrong at all. What if someone reads the information and gets, like, deceived? That just seems totally wicked, he said. It just doesn't seem right that they can publish stuff that's just blatantly not true, added the man, who also noted his firm belief that everyone has the right to define their own version of truth. Other Americans agreed, stating that the idea that shady news sites could get away with reporting completely inaccurate information was disturbing and evil, before stressing their belief that no one individual's notions about morality are absolute or binding in any meaningful sense. Tech conglomerates such as Facebook and Google have vowed to meet the trend head-on, assuring the public that they are taking bold steps to filter out any news that contradicts the version of truth that they decide is acceptable. (laughs) Now guys, that'd be real, real funny if it wasn't true. And the story is not true, but the thought behind it is we live in a crazy culture. And when I say crazy, I mean diagnosed scientifically as crazy. A culture that will stand and tell you there is no absolute truth, which is an absolute truth statement, by the way. 
It's insanity. It's really stupidity. And we stand at the beginning of Romans, if we go back to there, thinking themselves wise, they have become fools. But let me ask you a question. What if you grew up in a home where the people who raised you told you that up is down? Down was up, white was black, cold was hot, on and on. Anybody see The Matrix? If you haven't, don't watch it. But if you've seen it, it was like, you know, it's like people were living in a virtual reality type of deal. What if that's happened to us? What if this really is all just a merrily, 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 merrily life is but a dream? Karl Marx said that morality, religion, is the opiate of the masses. What if he's right? What if Christianity is really just the opiate of the masses and we're just high on the latest drug of the day? How do we know? Who says, right? Who makes these determinations? Now as Christians, we turn to the Bible. We look to God and His Word to know what's right and wrong, what's true and false. But why do we do that? Because Grandma said so? Because it works for us? Because it's good for our culture? Something to think about. Tuck that away. And let's look at our text today, which is Romans 12, 9 through 21. You're going, what? Trust me. In this passage, we will see a whole, whole, whole lot. So if you would stand, I'm going to read these, I guess, what is that, 13 verses? And we stand as a corporate body to respect the Word of God that's being read. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me pray. God, open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word. Holy Spirit, empower your word so that it becomes effective, effectual to us. Illumine the words that we're about to read and hear. Not my words, God, but the very words of God. Have your way with your people for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, I want to let you know up front that my original plan... Now, I've said once we get into Romans 12, man, we're going to really start running. We're going to pow, pow. We're going to knock out some passages. So my original plan was to cover 9 through 21 today. Well, we're not. (laughs) 
Today we're going to cover verse 9. Don't laugh at me. Sorry to disappoint if that does. Um, But my plan is to cover verses 10 through 21 next week. So ultimately, we'll cover this passage in two messages, which is not too bad. So there. Next week we'll do verse 10. 10a, probably. So. <laughs> that is subjective. So. <clears throat> we will, in the process of getting started on this passage, look at the context and how this all fits into the scheme of things. So we spent almost 20 months focusing on 11 chapters of doctrine, and in my, my mind, not, not the messages, but the Word, the doctrine was just fantastic stuff and, and necessary stuff. And after those 11 chapters of doctrine, we moved into chapter 12 <clears throat> where things really started getting practical. All that doctrine started finding its way into real life, which is exactly what it's supposed to do. <clears throat> and in the first part of chapter 12, we saw that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices and that is our spiritual worship. We were commanded not to be conformed to this world, but are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. And then, starting in verse 3, we're commanded not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And then we saw that we're placed in a body by God's doing, and we all have a part to play, which is shown in the grace gifts of God's giving. And that brings us to verses 9 through 21. And in my thoughts... 9 through 21 is the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. It's a whole lot like the Sermon on the Mount. A whole lot of similarities here. And the crux of 9 through 21 is verse 9. Verse 9 is the main point of this whole passage. So we'll start with it and focus on it today. And there is so much here. So let's dig into it. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let me just say, this verse is a preacher's dream come true. Let me explain what I mean by that. Now, it's loaded with implications, applications. It's three really outline-ready thoughts. Okay, you got three of them, which is what what good preachers do, right? We, We work in threes. It talks about love. It talks about evil, and it talks about good. I mean, come on, people. That's, I mean, it's like a dream come true. I'm like, I'm a preacher. I'm going, there's three points here, and they're, they're just all good love, evil, good. So, so our three-point outline today will be, one, love what is genuine, two, abhor what is evil, and three, hold fast to what is good. Whew, man, I did some good exegetical work right there, y'all. Yeah. Tough stuff. (laughs) So we'll look at this verse according to its direct layout. Now, how awesome is that? So, enough with that. Sorry. So, let's look into it. Remember, context present your body, don't be conformed, be transformed, discern God's will, think rightly of yourself, know your place in the body, exercise your gift. That's where we've been. But what does that look like? How does it translate into real life? And let me say something real quick that I probably need to add to last week's message. When we talk about the grace gifts, and I mentioned it in passing, but we're not just talking about Sunday morning. We're talking about life together. We're talking about exercising our gifts on Tuesday morning, Friday evening, Saturday afternoon. Okay, 
That's when we exercise our gifts. And I had that wrong for a long time. But anyway, so, so when we're talking about these things and what we're, going to, even what we're going to talk about today, we're not just talking about the Sunday morning service or the Wednesday evening service. It's part of it, but it's a minuscule part of it. This is life. We're, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not Sunday 10 to 12, but your life. Okay? It's very important to understand that. And I don't know that I emphasized that enough last week. <coughs> Excuse me. So anyway, exercise your gift. What's it look like? How does it translate into all of your life? First and foremost, most important and most noticeably, it has to be shown in that magic word. Love. You want to know how to worship God? You want to know how to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Love. Love. Point one, let love be genuine. And know from the outset that this point, this sentence, let love be genuine, that one sentence is the primary goal. It's the main command. And what's going to happen in verses 10 through 21, you're going to see, actually the end of 9 through 21, you're going to see how to let love be genuine. If I tell John to go clean his room, and when you go up there, make your bed, straighten your shelves up, put your toys up, hang your clothes up. What's the main objective? Clean your room. Everything else is a component of cleaning your room. What I'm trying to say here is, let love be genuine is the verb command. This is what we're supposed to do. Everything else is a participle, which means it really could read like this. Let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good, on and on and on and on through the rest of verse 21. Do you hear what I'm saying? What's the command? The command is let love be genuine. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what's the main command? Tally-ho the fox. Come on. One command in the Great Commission, what was it? Make disciples. We're going to have to go back through that book. Okay? The main command is not go. That's as you are going, make disciples. The command is make disciples. It's not teaching, baptizing, going. That's not the command. The command is to make disciples. All the other things are parts of that. That's what we're saying here. Please hear me say that. The command here is let love be genuine. Are we clear? Crystal clear. Good. So, <clears throat> let love be genuine. So the following two points are supports for the first point that we'll look at later. Abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Those are support points actually to the main point. Let love be genuine. The command is let love be genuine. So, <clears throat> what does that mean? What does it mean to let love be genuine? First, what is love? Four Greek words for love. Eros, phila, storge, and agape. Eros is erotic physical love. Or it could be like pizza love. I love pizza. I eros pizza. That is not funny. It's true. I'm, I'm confessing my love for pizza here. Give me some space, all right? Eros, I love something physically or erotically. Phila is brotherly love. You love a friend or a brother with a real close connection. Storge is familial love, like a parent to a child. 
and then agape. Agape is unconditional love, the kind of love that God shows His people. And, if you can imagine, the kind of love we are commanded to show each other here in Romans 12, 9. Let love, let agape, let unconditional God-like love be genuine. The first and most important command is for us to unconditionally love each other like God loves us. You said, but now wait a second, why do you say it's talking about us when it just says let love be genuine? Because if you'll remember our context, what did we just come out of last week? We're all placed in a body in a particular place and we're all to exercise our gifts, let love be genuine. So this is about how Christians love Christians. Now yes, it'll spill over into how we love non-Christians, absolutely. But this is about how we love and serve each other. Let your love, especially here within the body, be genuine. So yes, this is about loving each other. Now how do we define love? Now the easiest thing is to let the Bible define what love is. 1 Corinthians 13, yes I'm going to read it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What is love? Love is patient and kind. Wives, stop elbowing your husbands. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Husbands, stop elbowing your wives. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Is that just not perfect? It's almost like the Holy Spirit knew what He was doing. So when we talk about loving each other, that's what we're talking about. And it's an incredibly tall order. We have a hard time doing this in our homes, much less with all of you yahoos. Are you kidding me? I bet I get on somebody's nerves in this room this morning. you got to love me though. you just got to love me. You don't have a choice. <laughs> and I'm glad. Side note too, just to be clear, that chapter in 1 Corinthians comes right after chapter 12, which talks about what? Spiritual gifts. You see the connection here? Romans 12, we just came out of spiritual gifts and then Paul addresses love. 1 Corinthians 12, he addresses spiritual gifts, then Paul addresses love. If gifts aren't done in love because of love, they're not spiritual gifts. Probably not a coincidence, right? But this is how we're called to love each other how we're supposed to serve each other, how we're supposed to live with each other. And that is God-ish love. Thank Him that He loves us that way. Patient, kind, not boasting. 
And not only are we called to that type of love, but back in Romans, we're called to let that love be what? Genuine. Who sang? There was a song like back in the early 2000s. I'll take anything, anything genuine. Okay, I'll, just, I'll, I'll Google it later, okay? <laughs> we're called to love and let our love be genuine. Other translations say without dissimulation or without hypocrisy. The word for genuine is anipocritos, which means unskilled in the art of acting. That's what it means. It means I just can't act. I'm no good at acting. Think uh, Star Wars prequels, right? <laughs> hmm? Any scene that had Anakin and Padme in it. Let me read one for you. Okay, I got a good one. This is the clunkiest dialogue from a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. So listen, Anakin says, You are so beautiful. Padme says, it's only because I'm so in love. Anakin says, no, no, it's because I'm so in love with you. Padme says, then love has blinded you? Anakin says, well, that's not exactly what I meant. And Padme says, but it's probably true. What the heck? What? what? So when we're thinking about unskilled in the art of acting, okay, this surely comes to mind. They couldn't act. That's not true. They can act. I don't know what happened there. It has to be direction. Those are good actors. And it was awful. I mean, it was painful. I'm going, what, what is happening here? Could there be any less chemistry between two people in the universe? So when I'm thinking about letting love be genuine, I'm thinking, I can't act any other way. I can't act like I don't love you. I can't act like I love you and not actually love you. I can't act. I can't come through that door. I usually come through this door, by the way. You can't come through that door with your mask on, say, I'm fine, I love you. I'm fine, I love you. Then love has blinded you. That, that's not what I meant. You know, it's, it just doesn't work. So let love be genuine. Let love be without the skill of acting. That's what we're talking about. Genuine love can't act like they love somebody. Genuine love can't act like it's patient and kind. Genuine love is real. It's genuine. And that's the kind of love we are called to. Let love be genuine, not fake. Acting like you love somebody, not in that type of love. Somebody ever been nice to somebody when you're with them, but talk about them when, like a dog once they're gone? You're like, yeah, I do that about you, Pastor. What do we call that? Two-faced. That person is so two-faced. And that's exactly the opposite of genuine love. Genuine love has only one face and no mask. That was very tweetable right there, wasn't it? Somebody. Genuine love has only one face with no mask. And remember, this command here is the primary, most direct command in this whole passage of Romans 12, 9 through 21. What we see after this command is just ways to live out this command. Let love be genuine. That was point one. Now point two. Abhor what is evil. Huh. What? <laughs> W-O-T, what? 
Seems weird to me to come right out of a command to love and jump right into this. Let love be genuine. I would expect it to say something like, be nice to people and smile and give lots of warm hugs. And the rest of the chapter will give some really good solid ways to do these types of things, not hugs necessarily. But the first thing out of the chute after the command to love genuinely is to abhor what is evil. Now doesn't that seem weird to you? Abhor what is evil. Other translations say hate what is evil. The message paraphrases it as run for dear life from evil. The thought behind abhor is to have a horror of. Have a horror of evil. Or to separate from something that is hated. That's actually what the two words that make up the Greek word mean. They mean to separate from something that is hated. We simply have to hate evil if we're going to love in a genuine way. Do you hear what I just said? We're going to have to hate evil if we're going to love in a genuine way. That's pretty graphic, pointed language, isn't it? And what are we to abhor? We're to abhor evil. And evil literally means bad or wicked. We're supposed to abhor bad or wicked things. Let love be genuine. And one way to do that is to run for your life from wicked things. I guess in that thought pattern it makes pretty good sense, right? But if we're to abhor what is evil, what should we run to? Point three. Let love be genuine was point one. Abhor what is evil is point two. Point three, hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. Love genuinely by horror-strickenly running from evil things and by holding fast to what is good. The word for hold fast, in my estimation, subjectively, was the funnest word to explore in this passage. Kolao. It sounds Hawaiian, doesn't it? Kalaka, laka, kalao. But it's not. It's Greek. And it comes from the root word kala, which is glue. Eleven times in the New Testament it's used. Join oneself, cleave, be joined, keep company, and reach. To glue, to glue together, to cement, to fasten together, to join or fasten firmly together, to join oneself to or to cleave to. As you abhor evil, being in horror over it and running from it, you run to good. You glue yourself to good. You ever glue your fingers together? Now, Elmer's glue, no big deal, right? You pop them up and then you peel the glue off. Anybody do that in school? Anybody do that still? Okay, it's all right. Yeah, and then you eat it. No, you don't eat it. It is non-toxic though, so it's fun. But, but it's almost like fun. It's like you're peeling your skin off, okay? But what about super glue? Anybody ever super glue your fingers together by accident? How about your eyelids? How about your nose? Bad idea. I actually, let, let me tell you a good story about super glue, okay? I tried to super glue a guy's hat to his head one time. And let me give you history, okay? High school, senior year. Enough said, right? This guy was asleep in class in front of me. 
and I took my gum that was in my mouth, and he had this real coarse short hair. I mean, very coarse, very short. And I took my gum out and I laid it on the top of his head while he was asleep. Well, I did that, and I'm sitting, you know, everybody's laughing and stuff. He's asleep. <laughs> Got gum on top of his head. Well, principal buzzes into the classroom and says, Hey, I need to see this guy. And so the teacher says, Hey, Roy, wake up. So he wakes up. It's like they need you in the office. So he walks through the hall into the principal's office with his piece of gum on top of his head. Now, I didn't smash it down or anything, you know. Stuck it there. Well, he comes back, and he's chewing gum. I don't know if it was mine or not. And I had hair then, okay, believe it or not. And he came back in. He said, that's pretty funny what you did. And he took that gum out of his mouth, and he took his hand, and he smashed it on my head and went like this. And, I mean, got it into my hair. And, I mean, I'm like, I'm like, really? I set it on top of your head. So I had a revenge plan, Okay. I was going to take his hat and I was going to put super glue around the rim of it and have him put it on. That was my revenge plan. So we're in the theater and I said, Hey, Roy, let me see your hat. And by this point, you know, I had not forgotten. It's kind of like the cask of Amontillado for you Edgar Allan Poe fans. Okay? And I had not forgotten about this because I had to go home and like cut, my, cut that gum out of my hair. Months later, Hey, Roy, let me see your hat. So I literally, I've been carrying super glue around for a month, okay? <laughs> Okay, so I'm not kidding you. So I, I said, let me see if it fits me. I said, I got him on a hat. So I took it and I put it down. I put super glue around the rim of his hat. And I threw it back to him. And he was about to put it on and he saw it. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh! And I told him what I was going to do. He's like, dude, that would have like tore my scalp off. And I had to cut my hair. So glue yourself together. Super glue. Cement yourself together with what is good. The thought here is to glue yourself together with what is good. Fasten yourself to goodness. Cleave to what is good. The same word is used in the Corinthian letters to refer to sexual acts, by the way. It's about becoming one with something. And in this case, we are to become one with, fasten ourselves to, glue ourselves to what is good. And that makes good sense, doesn't it? Remember back at the other building, we referenced Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to fasten yourself to somebody or something. Are you going to fasten yourself to evil or are you going to fasten yourself to good? We're supposed to abhor what is evil, run for our lives away from evil and attach ourselves to what is good. You're going to be fastened to something. If we are to love genuinely, we have to not be one with evil, but we are supposed to be one with glued to good. Now that's pretty simple, straightforward, remedial Christianity, right? Evil is bad, good is good. Love people by hating bad stuff, loving good stuff. Right? Now here is where I think this message gets really, really important. Not that it wasn't important before. And it's why I wanted to take a full message on it, just this verse. Now, by the way, John Piper preached two messages on this one verse. So, This is a huge thought. Because let me ask you a question. Who determines what's good 
And who determines what's evil? Hmm? Is it subjective? Well, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I, that thing that I really hate is evil. Well, what is that thing that you hate? Well, it's anchovies. Somebody's like, I love anchovies. They're not evil. Well, yes, they are. They are to me. That's the culture we live in. So if I'm supposed to abhor what is evil, am I supposed to abhor what I determine to be evil? If I'm to cleave to what is good, glue myself to what is good, can I determine what I glue myself to? What's good? (laughs) Because that's what we're hearing day in, day out, Headline after headline after headline after movie after TV show after song telling us you are indeed your own captain. You can indeed determine what is good and what is evil for you. And let me tell you this, church, that is a lie. That is the devil's lie that He has you repeating to yourself over and over as He marches you straight to hell. This is a huge thought. Too often we determine what is good and evil by how we feel in the moment or how we feel about a person. Bob's boy Tim Keller puts it this way. When he says, When we love someone, it often distorts our view of good and evil. Song lyrics capture the problem. They tell us things like, If loving you is wrong... I don't want to be right. Or it can't be wrong if it feels so right. In other words, if you love someone, Keller says, your heart is bound up with his or her heart. Your beloved's distress becomes yours and his or her happiness becomes yours. Therein lies the temptation to give the loved one what creates emotional joy rather than what is best but which may create emotional sadness or anger. And he finishes the statement this way, It is an extremely common problem in child rearing. Parents don't punish children consistently because they cannot bear their tears and anger, but the result of a childhood without discipline is almost always disaster. Man, it just feels evil to treat somebody this way. It just feels evil to tell somebody that they're wrong. Don't you judge me, right? Judge not lest you be judged, right? (sighs) Jesus wept, okay? But that leaves us... this, This thought pattern leaves us in a potentially confusing place. If I can't trust myself, if I can't trust my emotions about what is evil and what is good, what or who... Can I trust? Please, please, please listen to what I'm about to say. That means stop what you're doing, empty your hands, and look at me. Whether you're four or eighty in this room this morning, there is only one objective true standard of what is good and what is evil in the world today. Now, did you hear what I just said? 
Because I'm telling you, it's the most important thing I'll say all day. There is only one objective standard of truth in the world today, and that is the Word of God. And you knew I was going to say that, right? But do you get the full implications of what I just said? Do you understand that this means that if I am to hate anything for its evilness, that I have to go to the Bible and see what the Bible calls evil? And once the Bible says it's evil, I am commanded to hate it. If I want to cling to what is good, I have to go to the Bible to determine what good really is. And then I am to cling to that which is good. Why? Why am I to hate evil? Why am I to cling to what is good? It's so that my love for you all can be genuine. I cannot love you properly if I do not hate evil. I cannot love you genuinely if I do not cling to what is good. And neither can you. Well, it's not right to say that something's evil. Then what are we doing? Why are we here? Why not just lock the doors and go home and make up our own minds what we want to call good and evil? We can't do that, people. We live in a culture that's compelling us to do just that. Shut your Bibles, shut the doors, go home, be filled, be fed, be happy, eat, drink today because tomorrow we die and none of it matters anyway. So enjoy what you got. If something's inconvenient, get rid of it. the Bible says something is evil, then I'm to hate it. If the Bible says something is good, I am to cling to it. I don't get to pick and choose what I hate and what I cling to. I don't get to let my mood dictate what seems good or bad to me depending on cultural norms or so-called progress. If the Bible says something is evil, then I am to hate it. I am to abhor it. If the Bible says something is good, I am to cling to it. I am to glue myself to it. If the Bible says the killing of an innocent child is evil, then I am to hate it. CNN doesn't get to make that decision for me. Nor does Fox News. So what then? What are we to do? How are we to live? Well, our verse and our outline serves as the guidelines for our application points, except we're going to reverse them. Three application points. The first application point is cling to what is good. So then the question is, what does the Bible say is good? Well, there's a lot of things that the Bible says is good. We don't have time to get into all of them this morning. But what did we sing this morning? For the Lord is good. You're a good, good father. 
haven't you been good to me? Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He read it this morning. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Ultimately, you want to know what's good? God is good. And we say it and we believe it, but we forget it. Because something else calls for our attention. Something else rouses our affections. Something else tastes good to us. But taste and see that the Lord is good. And if I'm to cling to what is good, ultimately I am to cling to the person of Jesus Christ. That's an application point right there. Glue yourself to Jesus. We need a bumper sticker that says that. Glue yourself to Jesus. People are like, what in the world are you talking about? I cleave myself to Him. I cling to Him. I love Him because He loved me and I have joined myself to Him. Actually, He has joined ourselves to Him. He's done that. But He wraps His arms around me out of love, out of compassion. He draws me to Himself. He wraps me up. And in the midst of it, I cling to Him. and say, this is exactly what I want. This is exactly what I love. This is good. And I cling to Him. I glue myself, super glue cement to the person of Christ. So when the world calls and affections arise, I don't need to separate from my Jesus. He's good. Good. Psalm 105, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Listen, that's something I want to cling to. And when I do that, I love you all better. And that's the point. So the first application point was cling to what is good. Second application point. Abhor what is evil. It's a tough one, y'all. Because I'm 99.9999999999% sure I don't hate everything that's evil. I don't hate everything that the Bible calls evil. Kind of like it sometimes. I kind of cling to it. It kind of clings to me too. But I am called through a scriptural command to abhor what is evil. So what does the Bible say is evil? O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Psalm 97.10 He preserves the life of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So you see evil and wicked there, but that don't really help us, does it? I promise you there are plenty of scriptural descriptions of what is evil. Let me give you... The most straightforward one that I found, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. So stop. Is this evil? Yes. Clearly. Easily. 